trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University. We're taking on the grand challenges that face our students, graduates, and higher education is our mission and our passion. Hosted by Mason President Gregory Washington, this is the Access to Excellence podcast. It has been said that the midterm elections coming in November could be among the most consequential in American history. I don't know if I believe that, but I have the individual here to discuss it. You know, historically, the party not in the White House does better in the midterms. And while the Republicans might very well flip the House of Representatives, there are predictions that the Democrats will actually hold on to the Senate. Here to put all of this in context is Jennifer Victor, an associate professor of political science in Mason's Schar School of Policy and Government. Jennifer is an expert on the U.S. Congress, political parties, organized interest groups, and social networks. Dr. Victor has published research in the American Journal of Political Science and the British Journal of Political Science. Her public scholarship has also appeared in the New York Times. She is also on the board of the Center of Responsive Politics, a nonpartisan research group that tracks the money in U.S. politics and its effect on elections and public policy. In 2019, Dr. Victor received Mason's Teaching Excellence Award, and in 2020, she wrote a 24-lecture course on understanding the U.S. government, which is available to the public through a subscription. Dr. Victor, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, let's start with the premise of your lecture series. Sure. Because it is outstanding. Thank you so much. Is it even possible to understand the U.S. government considering the way things have been going, the way it's been operating, and some of the colossal failures that we seem to be having? You know, it's interesting. When I got into this business, by which I mean the academic study of politics, about 20 years ago now, I got my PhD in 2003, the world and politics in general didn't seem that puzzling. Like, it was my job as an academic to come up with puzzles and develop research designs to answer them, but they were often about somewhat, upon reflection, almost trivial things about Congress or lobbying or campaign finance or whatnot. And as my career has progressed, the nature of what I do has become more consequential, more existential in a way. (laughs) I don't think I ever imagined that the job could be so challenging in terms of the world presenting puzzles to us about how government works and how democracy does and, and doesn't function. Every once in a while, I just stop and reflect on my own journey of learning in the last couple of decades about how complex things have become. There's an interesting story about how your research and scholarship came to be. As I understand, that trajectory began with the American Political Science Association Fellowship that you had in 2005 while you were teaching at the University of Pittsburgh. So how did that fellowship change your perspectives? Yeah, that's right. So I was an assistant professor at Pitt. That was my first job that I started in 2004. And in the 04-05 school year, I won one of these American Political Science Association fellowship. You know, they take a, a small handful, a half dozen or so political scientists who study Congress every year, and they put them on the Hill just to work, not to collect data, not to do interviews, but to just be a staffer as a fellow in a 
member of Congress's office. And I had the privilege of earning one of these fellowships and going to the Hill and doing this work. And I'm somebody who went straight through school, right? So I, straight from undergrad, went into a PhD program. I hadn't not been in academia for any of my life. And although I was a scholar of Congress, I had never worked as an intern or anything like that. I grew up in California and, I don't know, Washington seemed like a long way away when I was in high school and college. So I didn't really have any real experience on the Hill, and so I was really excited to get to go and do this. So I get there, and I work in the office of Senator Kent Conrad, who at the time, he was a Democrat from North Dakota. He's no longer in the Senate. And I did work on tax policy and and things for the Senate Finance Committee for him. And the thing that I came away with from that experience was this incongruity (laughs) that I didn't know what to do with, because I had been all through school, all through my almost decade long of training in political science that was very focused on sort of rational choice and economics and statistics and this very realistic form of empirical, grounded research about politics. And I get on the Hill and I see these people making relationships with one another. And it seems like our office is co-sponsoring a bill with Senator Sam Torm's office because these two staffers used to work together in the Social Security Administration and they were friends and that's how this happened. All of these things kept happening where I was like, this isn't just about individuals and their utility functions and their rational behavior as they respond to the incentives that the institutions have given to them. It's also about their relationships and their interactions. And there were all sorts of things that were happening that I observed that I didn't know how to fit into my models, into into my traditional training. And then in 2008, I got an email that came from a couple of scholars at Harvard. Uh, James Fowler and David Lazar were getting ready to host the first political networks conference. And I read a little bit about this event that they wanted to do. And I went, that's it. That's what this is. It's that politics is fundamentally about relationships. And if we want to be able to explain outcomes, like why a bill passes or why a bill fails or why a senator votes yes or no or whatnot, we have to put it into the context of the interactions that political actors have with one another. And so I went to the Harvard conference, and I sort of think of it as sort of drank the sociological Kool-Aid and learned as much as I could about these tools that at the time were very new to political science. Some of the sociological tools had been around for decades, and those were just now getting applied to political science. Science. But one of the reasons it was coming into political science is because of new statistical tools and just computers sort of got large enough to handle the size of these political data sets. And this became my main field. I became a, a leader in the, in the subfield of political networks in the American Political Science Association. And all of my research since then has been about looking at politics as relationships and trying to understand the way that interactions between people, whether it's between members of Congress or between citizens and members of Congress or between lobbyists or all of this type of interaction, helps us explain why things happen. And if we just look at politics as these individualistic things, then and we're missing a whole lot of the story. And so I'm trying to use the tools that I've picked up over the years to shed an, a new light on how we understand why things happen. So I consistently read information that the relationships, the engagement amongst Republicans and Democrats are very different now than what they used to be 20, 30, 40 years ago that it was quite common for individuals to vehemently disagree on one topic. They just have very little in common, but have this really beautiful friendship where they would meet after votes for drinks 
or go mm-hmm. golfing together, otherwise be pretty good friends outside of the fact that they just had different political beliefs. Admit that, okay, I see where you stand on this issue and you know I'm standing opposite. I'm going to come two steps to the left if you come three steps to the right. Mm -hmm. And you meet somewhere in the middle. Not everybody gets exactly what they want, but they get something that they can take back to their constituencies and say, this is what we were able to solve and get going. And you don't hear a lot about that happening now. Are the networks different? Are people now more in echo chambers? And then they have very little connection to the other cohort on the other side of the fence. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Are you seeing that in your research? At the beginning of your question, you were mentioning the great stories of political opposites who were great friends. Think of the stories that came out about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia being good friends, Mm -hmm. or Orrin Hatch and Ted Kennedy were apparently pretty good buddies. Just very opposite, political opposites, and in some ways you almost think of them as personality opposites kind of people who didn't agree on much politically, but had these great friendships, and there's something about those friendships. So for several decades, people, especially in the sort of journalistic side of politics, have been lamenting the decline of comity, the decline of people just being friendly with one another and socializing and going to dinner parties at one another's houses and going to their kids' soccer games as members of Congress would get together, and and that somehow those casual social connections between them maybe helped them to be more agreeable when it came down to brass tacks on the conference floor. Whatnot. So to be honest, there is some evidence of that. There is some evidence that we can say that, yes, when people have more casual common connections with one another, it provides them more opportunities to find points of agreement that may translate into politics. But I think it's also really tempting to overstate that effect. So some of my research shows that even when we do provide people lots of opportunity for voluntary social interaction with one another, it can make a little difference. But in reality, the added benefit that those social interactions are having on big political decisions, like how often they would vote with one another or compromise over legislation or whatnot, doesn't make a huge difference, right? So the things that are making a huge difference there are the extent to which partisanship has become so much more entrenched, particularly among political elites, by which I mean elected people, and also to some extent among the public as well. So over the course of the last 40, 50 years, one of the things that's happened in American politics is that the coalition that makes up each of the political parties, the Democratic and the Republican parties, have realigned themselves so that the parties themselves are defined very strongly by ideology. You know, sometimes I say this to my students and they look at me like, of course, how could this be any other way? But, you know, we live in a world now where liberals are tend to be Democrats and conservatives tend to be Republicans. My Mason students all think that that's perfectly normal and I have to tell them that it's in fact quite weird. And in fact, through lots of periods of U.S. history, we have had much more ideological diversity within the party coalitions. And the fact that partisanship and ideology are so well aligned today, are so correlated, means that there is very little room to build 
build coalitions across parties, right? So back in the middle of the 20th century, when you had liberals in the Republican Party and conservatives in the Democratic Party, you could build an ideological coalition that was made up of Republicans and Democrats and use that to pass legislation through Congress. So you look at lots of legislative productivity in the middle of the 20th century, and that was largely how that happened. But after the civil rights movement, all the racial conservatives essentially migrate away from the Democratic Party and into the Republican Party, and we get this greater trend towards ideology and partisanship lining up. It just reduces the bargaining space. It reduces the possibility for partisans to build coalitions. And the way that Congress works is you really have to have some semblance of bipartisanship to get things done. Either you have to have huge partisan majorities where one party is really in control of everything, and we just don't see that very often, or you have to build bipartisan coalitions. And both of those things just are really rare events in modern politics. But while the parties themselves seem to be exactly as you have outlined, the voters themselves are not necessarily so in President Trump's presidency and in President Obama's presidency. Both of these individuals were able to pull at least people who, if you were a moderate Republican, some of those individuals voted for Obama. If you were a conservative Democrat, a number of those individuals voted for Donald Trump. Absolutely. People found middle ground in a candidate that was not a member of their stated party because that person had views that were more in alignment with their own worldview is what mm-hmm. it is what it seemed like to me. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the political parties have dumbed things down to the point of if you're a Democrat, here's what you believe. And if you're a Republican, here's what you believe. And the reality is people don't work that way. They believe some of these things on one party and a few things on the other, right? Yeah. You know, it's okay for you to be for civil rights and anti abortion. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you know you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You're forced to choose one or the other. In my opinion, it's part of the challenge as opposed to letting some of these natural norms take place. What, yeah. What's your thought? Well, I, I, I think I want to push back a little bit on the dumbing down part, because in a sense, I think that's always been there. The job of a political party is to create a package that is attractive to the most voters possible. Like, that is their main job. <laughs> And marketing that, coming up with a package that sells, has always been the job of every political party, right, since the Federalists and the Whigs. (laughs) And so there's always been that sense of sort of simplification to try to build that coalition. And so, you know, I I think some of what we see today is just the way parties work, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But one of the things that happens, and I think this largely has to do with the way that our media operates today, is that if you're somebody who follows politics at all, you're under the impression that everybody follows politics and that everything's intense all the time and everything's on fire and everything's an emergency and people have really passionate feelings about politics. And it turns out that is true, but only for about somewhere between 20 and 40 percent of the population. There are intense groups of people who follow politics really closely and who hold their partisan identity really, really strongly. But most Americans don't pay much attention to politics. Most Americans aren't listening to podcasts and following the news real closely. Right? Really? Really? No. Most Americans are listening to the access Absolutely. to excellence podcast. Okay. I mean, they should, (laughs) but if they do, I don't know. 
but I think when we're under the impression that everybody's paying attention to everything all the time and everything's always on fire, then it gives the idea that more people hold really strong partisan views than perhaps actually do, right? Well, I got to push back on this one. Okay, sure. And you can tell me where I'm wrong. Look, you've studied this. Maybe it's me. But for a lot of folk, we are on fire. Look, look, when, when you, you That's know. That's fair. Uh, <laughs> we are in a precarious situation right now. Um, I it, give but, you that. But it has been for quite some time, right? Mm-hmm. It started with the pandemic. and Oh, it started tell before me, that. Well, I, I get it. <laughs> but it really, really started with the pandemic, right? But let and, me- and even with the election of Donald Trump, you had people who were kind of indifferent you know, it says only so much a president can do or so not to. And, you know, they voted whatever they voted. But then the pandemic hit and all of a sudden policy became important. All of a sudden, the decisions that the country and the government made had a real significant effect on people's lives. Yeah. From wearing masks to taking vaccines to uh, if there was where, ever where a compelling go. role for government, it's during a pandemic. And it was clear. And then post-pandemic, you had uh, all, uh, you know, well, it's hard to say post-pandemic. We're still right. at least semi, in, at least in the endemic phase. But even since the time of the heart of the pandemic, it's still policy. It's the policy of support that you hear folk claiming is the rationale and the reason behind the inflation that we're dealing with now. This thing has not ended. You know, some people will say, look, the world was vulnerable and looking the other way. And it provided at least a pathway for Putin to invade Ukraine. Why? Mm -hmm. Because surely with the inflation and with the increased cost that's happening throughout the world, surely they wouldn't challenge him because he could threaten the world with cutting off oil supplies and natural gas supplies to Europe, right? And so that's a natural consequence of the pandemic (laughs) and the support because the inflation related to that, right? So, and it's been one series of political decisions and policy decisions after another, after another, after another. And I believe that Americans feel this. They see it. Uh Uh-huh. They clearly are in tune that the decisions that these folk are making actually can really, really affect me and can infect me in a profound way. And I think that that's why we put the question, <laughs> in the, the very first question, that this could be amongst the most consequential elections. It seems like we say that every November or every other November, depending on how you look at things. It might be worth digging down a little bit Uh there to talk about why that is the case. Because the way that I think about this is in terms of democratic resilience or democratic decline. One of the reasons people talk about this midterm being one of the most consequential Mm -hmm. is because of the number of people who are on the ballot who deny the results of the last election or who are unwilling to agree to accept the results of the current election that they're running in, and that the precariousness of whether or not the general public will believe election results, that's what a democracy hinges on. As soon as we don't believe elections anymore, that we don't think we have free and fair elections, then we don't have a democracy anymore. And there seems to be an increasing number of Americans who are okay with that, who 
are concerned about the way democracy has treated them, perhaps. And so if we wind up electing a whole bunch of folks that aren't willing to sort of adhere to the norms and values of democracy, then that puts the whole system on a weaker footing. But one of the frameworks that I think is useful here, to bring this back to your your point about the pandemic, is to think of democracy not as some big amorphous institutional thing that nobody can wrap their head around, but to think of it rather as an individual thing, Mm -hmm. to think about each individual person in the country and how much liberty they feel like they have, how much equality or sense of personal rights they feel like they have, how much opportunity for prosperity they feel like they have. And if you think of the proportion of the population over the course of U.S. history that has felt that they have some threshold of democracy. We have in my lifetime, so I was, I was born in 1975, and over the course of my lifetime, like between the 1965 Voting Rights Act and somewhere around 2013, I would say the U.S. was at peak democracy where the most people had the most of that threshold level, access to voting rights, access to means of equality, greater freedoms, greater access to prosperity. People were able to think about being able to go to college and work a summer job and pay for your tuition during the year and like all sorts of things that that seem economically, socially, politically impossible today. And as a number of institutions in the U.S. have weakened, and here I'm thinking mostly about electoral institutions, and the partisanship has taken hold of everything, we, I think, are seeing a declining number of people who feel like they themselves have this individual agency of democracy, that they would see themselves as having guaranteed rights and freedoms. And I think that helps explain for a lot of folks their sense of grievance and threat. I think there's two big buckets of things that we can do to help right the wrongs or to help improve the situation of declining democracy. And one has to do with big institutional reforms, and I'll set that on the table right now because it's definitely hard to achieve. But the other is the everyday things, the building community, the making people have a sense of agency and and efficaciousness in their own lives. And this is why I do so much work with my students on civic engagement and talking about the things that we can do to, to build community. I think that that is clearly an outcome that is worthy of our pursuits. But let me unwrap a couple of things and put it in a slightly different context. Mm -hmm. We just went through the most successful election in history. Yeah. In terms of voter participation, this dwarfs any previous election. Absolutely. By by millions of votes. Absolutely. By a wide margin. Millions more people voted this time than at any particular time in history, right? Mm-hmm. And so from that extent, you have to say maybe things are working better or were working better than it's being portrayed in the media, right? Because the reality is there was an effort by individuals to go out and vote. Yeah. No, no, I think that's totally fair. And the vote was, if you look at the popular vote as a percentage, it's almost split right down the middle, right? You had a, a slightly higher percentage for one side than the other. And that represents the country where we are now. It was 50-50. And so, mm-hmm. and so what that meant is that about half the people, and like I said, it wasn't exactly half, but close enough. I'm an engineer. I'm not a mathematician. <laughs> and as in, close enough matters, right? About half of the population was going to be upset at the result. Mm-hmm. And you had such energy 
in this past election. Such passion on both sides that we probably should have expected an outcome similar to the outcome that we achieved because we never had this kind of energy. Look, I participated in campaigns. I participated in elections. I've never seen anything like what just transpired in the the election in which Joe Biden won the presidency. I have not. And importantly, it was election under duress during a pandemic when when voting administration itself was uncertain and had to change their formats at the last minute and invent new systems on the fly. So clearly... There are people who are upset at the outcome. But the reality is, in the end, the system actually worked, right? No, I think you're right. And I think the civil engagement piece that you are talking about has to teach that. Absolutely. Right? And there's ways we can do it by looking at the data, by looking at how people voted and the percentage. Even those that have problems with how things, quote unquote, transpired, you're talking small percentages of millions and millions of people who voted. And so the turnout thing is a double edged sword, though, to some extent. I mean, you, you are absolutely right that. For democracy, it's a victory when lots of people turn out to vote, and that we can certainly interpret that as a robust sign about democratic participation. On the other hand, there's an alternative interpretation, contradictorily, that in democracies that are under threat or that are weakened, we sometimes see increased participation. And so counterintuitively, to some extent, our higher turnout rates as of late can be interpreted as a signal of almost a weakness in the system, which, of course, is the opposite of how we tend to measure democracy, which is about participation. Yeah, I'm not so sure. These I, I, are, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tough these are mixed. Right si- these are mixed. I, I'm just saying. There's, no, no, I get it. I'm sure that there's research to highlight that, right? But the other, th- the other way to think about it is that as a result of political polarization, as the parties get further apart from one another, the consequences of losing an election get much, much worse, right? right? If the parties are near one another, when you lose to the other side, okay, we lost, we go on, it's not that big of a deal. But when the other side is evil. anathema, if it's evil, if it's threatening to you, then it's much worse to lose to that side. So that has the effect of increasing participation and increasing a sense of loss. And in those situations, as polarization worsens, we have this effect where partisans tend to overvalue losses relative to gains no, I in, get in it. the sense no, of no, elections. No, I get it. Yeah, I, I think you've explained that better than anybody. I, I've, I've posed this question to a number of people, and your explanation there was probably the best I've ever heard. You're absolutely right on this. So if I'm conceding that is indeed the case, right, that things are getting worse and not better, and that this upcoming election in a non-presidential year, mm-hmm. mind you, is being touted as the most consequential of our time. Give me your thoughts on that. Is that accurate or not? It seems like it'll be the most consequential until the presidential election Absolutely. That, will, that will happen two years later, okay? No, that's right. <laughs> okay, and, and and so We're going to keep hearing that, I think, though, for the next decade or so. Every no, election I, I, is going to be you. the most important election. And, and they're talking about, oh, well, this is about keep the, the Democrats keeping the House. And so as a modeler, and I, I model systems, right? We, we have this saying, and that is the trend is your friend. The trend is that the party not in power usually picks up Seats, right. right, 
in the midterms. And that is probably what will happen. And that is probably what will happen. And the only way that doesn't happen is if something dramatic happens to break the trend, i.e. 9-11. So George Bush broke that trend. Sure. And he broke the trend because 9-11 happened. Yep. And there was a sentiment that people wanted to stay the course. Yep. Right. They wanted to stick with what they had in order to deal with this external threat that was affecting the country. Mm-hmm. Look, look, the reality is there is nothing consequential, in my opinion, about what's about to happen because we'll have divided government. And with divided government, people will have to find compromise if they want to get something done. And that may not actually be a bad thing because you'll, you'll have to find that level of compromise. So I don't know that divided government is a bad thing. I mean, um, look, divided government is the norm. It's, what tends it's to, usually what we right. exist in. Because what tends to happen when one party has everything, they govern from that side of the fence and it motivates the other side to a fever pitch. And then they bounce half of the right. people out the next time. Right? right. And it always happens. No matter how big the majority, you're going to lose it at some time because you're going to govern from that perspective. That's what the trends tell us. That's what the data says. And the data kind of doesn't lie. So, you know, in a way, you're emphasizing one of the core tenets of what makes a democracy, and that is to have competitive political parties, Mm -hmm. right? So one of the challenges of the United States and the way our government is set up is that the Constitution was written as if parties didn't exist. In fact, the framers, arguably, thought that parties were bad. They thought that parties would destroy the government. Mm -hmm. And Madison wrote about the violence of factions. And they thought that if they built in enough separation of powers and checks and balances and federalism and dispersed power in all of these different ways, that it would prevent the need for parties to form. And on that, they were just wrong. (laughs) Parties, it turns out, are an essential feature of democratic systems. We can't have democracy without political parties. And in a way, it's weird. Like, they had parties at the time. You had federalists and anti-federalists. They just didn't operate the same way Mm -hmm. that they do now, obviously. But anyway, the parties, of course, inevitably form. And so now what we have is a party system that sits on top of this other disparate system with all of this decentralized power. Mm -hmm. And at certain points in history, that has maybe more or less worked okay. We were talking about some of the productivity in the middle part of the 20th century. But those periods of partisan productivity sitting on top of this power-dispersed system have come at incredible costs, right? Because those have also been periods of time when you had incredible disenfranchisement of great Mm -hmm. sections of the population. And if you want to think about a population that is empowered to vote, where most of the adult population has the power to vote, and a time where the parties are willing to work together to to come to policy compromise, it just hasn't happened. We have literally not seen that happen in the United States. And the strong party ID that most people have. You know, 30% of the population says that they are politically independent, but at more than half of those people vote always with one political party. So That's even right. if parties themselves right. are anathema, the idea of having an identity that is associated with partisanship is extremely strong and, and really growing in our society. Again, as the polarization gets worse, it, it disincentivizes the compromise. You know, you were talking about the idea of Republicans and Democrats sort of bouncing back and forth, and one party has the majority 
dirty this time, the next one the next time, and how that exchange can sometimes bring about a sense of negotiation or bargaining or or moderation. Um, To some extent, that's true. On the other hand, it could also be the case that if you're in the minority and you think you've got a chance at the minority in the next round or two of mm-hmm. contests, mm-hmm. then you have no incentive to compromise or bargain because you're just going to wait until it's your turn to be half power. And so to some extent, the jostling of power back and forth disincentivizes some moderation between the parties. So I just told you the trend is your friend, yeah. right? And these political trends, especially in politics, they're better than 95% of the models that engineers and mathematicians develop. These trends are money, and you can bet on them, right? Case in point, in the first presidential year, the governor of Virginia is always, always opposite yep. whoever's in the White House. The party that just won the White House, yep. Right? Under George Bush, the first, Virginia went blue. Under Bill Clinton, Virginia went red. Yep. Under George W. Bush, Virginia went blue. Under Barack Obama, Virginia went red. Under Donald Trump, Virginia went blue. And under Joe Biden, Virginia went red. Yep. That's what happens. And the political pundits miss the trend. They miss the trend totally. So do you want to know and, the political and, and science so, term and, for this? What is it? It's called thermostatic politics. Okay, I hear you. <laughs> but the other state that flipped... The the same way as New Jersey. Mm -hmm. But New Jersey did not flip this time. Mm -hmm. Okay? And it wasn't because of externalities. It was because the governor candidate in New Jersey ran like he was losing. See, Terry McAuliffe didn't do that. Mm -hmm. Right? He ran like he was expected to win Mm -hmm. because he was reading the wrong trend. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And everybody expected him to win. He was ahead in the polls and it was expected. And everybody thinks that, okay, well, Youngkin did something phenomenal. It's a trend that has been a trend in politics for years. We call this the election fundamentals. And most elections, especially the big ones, can be predicted without even knowing who the candidates are or what's going on in the campaigns because of these types of structural trends. And I believe that it's the same thing going. Look, I'm not saying that people should not go out and vote, that people should not be a part of the electoral process. I think you should do all those things because there is a chance, i.e. New Jersey, that these things can change, right? And so, and when elections are close, it makes it more likely that right. and you stuff don't like know, that will matter. And you don't know what thing can happen, what small or major mm-hmm. issue can happen close enough to the election time, sure. i.e. Roe v. Wade, to sure. flip an election one way or the other. So people should definitely engage. We at Mason should help our students to understand these trends. This is why I'm very much in favor. I literally lectured about this last week in Outstanding. Class. Well, see, <laughs> have your students get the tape. Get the tape. But but the, one, you're, you're underscoring another really important point, though, that is in the political science literature. There's a book that came out a few years ago called Democracy for Realists uh-huh. um, by uh, Larry Bartels and Chris Aiken. One of the big arguments of this book is that elections turn out to be a really poor mechanism for a accountability. 
We think that that's what democracy is about. We think that democracy is about using an election to say, yes, we like these people in power, or no, we don't, or we want to change, or whatever. And we're using elections to give our say. But this book goes through all of this political science evidence to show that elections are, in fact, a terrible mechanism, (laughs) and mostly because humans are cognitive misers and all these other problems with how human brains work, really. But importantly, the inference or the conclusion that you draw from this body of evidence is not, oh, well, let's not have elections then. They can't do this thing. No, the answer is we have to have elections because without elections, you don't have democracy. Elections are still our mechanism for creating community, creating buy-in, for supporting one another in a society. But it's also an opportunity for people to highlight the issues. Yeah, and absolutely. And it is an opportunity for people to... And the discourse is important. Oh, yeah, without question. And for our young people, in my opinion, it's an opportunity for them, at least nowadays, to really learn how the country works. Absolutely. If I could be one other discipline besides an engineer right now, it would be a political scientist. Come on over, man. Right? And you know why? <laughs> because the level of dynamic change... And the level of depth of learning that's happening now. I mean, you just had people storm the Capitol (laughs) last January, right? And as difficult as that was, as challenging as that was, right, there was a reason why these individuals were storming the Capitol. They were trying to stop the counting of votes, which is a part of our political process. Mm -hmm. You understand what I'm saying? And to understand why they were there or why they were prompted to be there you actually have to understand what was actually taking place in the halls of Congress and the Senate during that time, right? Yep. And that's that's the learning piece. So it wasn't just about people believing that the election was stolen. There was also a operational construct of what was literally happening at that time for people to go on that date. Right. Why not have chosen the seventh would have been too late. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? The 13th would have been too late. The first would have been too early. You know what I mean? The institutions definitely structured the behavior in the sense that that was when the event was happening. But two things about that. One is we can't dismiss the opportunity to underscore how important misinformation and political manipulation was in instigating that event and how vulnerable really all of us are to conspiracy theory and falling victim to misunderstanding the facts and how to interpret them. But when you Um, give people information and when you teach them how to interpret and understand that information, you actually limit the ability for them to be manipulated as such. Well, that's the hope. And there there is some evidence to suggest that we can use positive informative corrections to help correct people's misunderstandings and misinformation that they fall victim to. There are some challenges there. But the other thing, and I don't want to try to put a lipstick on a pig or whatever the right term is, gild the lily, (laughs) because what happened on January 6, 2021 was truly horrific and violent and involved all of these white supremacy organizations and so forth that that got things going. And, And I think there was a lot of evidence about a pretty big conspiracy going on there. But to some extent, what you are talking about, about why students should vote, about why people should be involved, and to some extent what was going on on January 6th, it, the story of American politics is about organizing. It's about coming to some understanding about what needs need to be met, what challenges we have to overcome, and building 
political and social organizations and coalitions to pursue better policy and better government and to make things better for communities. And even though the people on January 6th had that really backwards, if you just think about all of the different social political movements that the United States has seen over the years, that's the story of democracy to me. Now, I, I hear you. people coming together. But let me change one fact, and then let me ask you the same question. Let's suppose, and I, and I know this is a stretch, and I know who I'm talking to, okay? <laughs> but let's suppose for one minute that the election was actually stolen. If the election were actually stolen, the idea of large numbers of people coming to D.C. to express their displeasure on that date without the violence. Right, right, right. Right? That's exactly what should have happened, right? Yeah, I mean, if, okay, and so, you don't have democracy if you don't have free and fair elections. And when there is evidence that you have had fraud or the election has not been free and fair, absolutely we need mechanisms to challenge that. Right. But those mechanisms already exist. We have built-in systems for people to challenge and question but even, if, even, if there is evidence that but, things but, haven't gone well. But there's always a possibility that those mechanisms can fail, too. Sure. And to the extent that those mechanisms would fail, you would hope that there is an ability for people to be able to express themselves and highlight their displeasure with the direction or with what had actually transpired. And to me, that's also a part of the freedoms that we have here, right? Absolutely. Imagine if that were in Russia. I you know I can go on down the list, right? So you, you are can, you unknowingly. Can see, you can see you can see what's happening in Iran right now. Yeah. Those people are indeed protesting, right? And what is happening to them on the back end is not what happened to our people here in this country. Yeah. Okay. You, 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 we're not talking about some people going to jail and that kind of stuff. We're talking about people who are just not here, right? Okay. And and so. So you might not be aware, but you are, again, underscoring a whole political science literature here. So after Donald Trump got elected in 2016, there were a couple of political scientists at Harvard. They wrote a book called How Democracies Die. They are scholars of comparative politics who mm -hmm. have studied, failed, and succeeded democracies across the world at different periods of time. And they were alarmed at what was going on in the United States and sort of wrote this book for a general audience very quickly. And one of the main themes of that book is that what makes a democracy robust is two things. First, you have to have what you and I have talked a lot about here, the institutions. You have to have free and fair elections. You have to have rule of law. You have to have a legislature, et cetera, et cetera. You have to agree on what the rules are, and then has to be ways to enforce them. But importantly, setting that aside, in addition, the institutions aren't enough. What you also have to have in order for democracies to work are for the players in the democracy, everything from the elites down to the, the last citizen, is an agreement on the norms, an agreement that there are certain behaviors that we follow in how we treat one another. And the two that they settle on as being some of the most critical and the most under threat in the U.S. right now are what they call mutual toleration and institutional forbearance. And essentially those boil down to respect and restraint where political adversaries, political opposites, in this case, just Republicans and Democrats, they have to agree to respect one another's right to participate in the political arena, to compete for elections, to win and to lose. They have to respect one another's right to govern when they have power. And then when you have power, you have to restrain yourself. You can't run roughshod over your political opponents. There has to be some sense of political restraint. And when the political actors no longer follow the rules 
rules of respect and restraint, then we see this slow, frog-boiling kind of degradation of democratic institutions. And it exacerbates and accelerates the polarization between the parties. They become reinforcing effects. And you think this is a slow frog-boil, huh? Because we're in a pot and it's hot. Yep. We are in slow frog-boiling stage. If we're in slow frog-boiling stage, the water is boiling right now. Yep. Okay. (laughs) So, But all the more reason to get out there and vote and organize and serve your community and learn about ways to improve institutions. And this is my pinned tweet right now is, if you want to live in a democracy, you have to act like it. You have to do the activities that are consistent with democratic principles. I really, really appreciate it. Now, as I wrap up here, two quick questions, rapid fire. I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit. But you're a political scientist, so you're used to it. (laughs) All right. Question number one, rapid fire. What do you believe will be the outcome in November? The Republicans will pick up the House, but it'll be a relatively narrow majority that they win. And uh, the Senate looks too uncertain to predict whichever way it's going to be one or two seats here or there. It's hard to say which way. Are you going to make me pick one? Because... Whatever I pick, you, you it, could, pick. it could be the other. You, you All right, fine. Pick. Democrats will hold the Senate. Okay. I don't feel confident about that prediction, though. And the last question here, rapid fire, yes or no, do you believe this midterm election will be the most consequential of our time? <laughs> I mean, to the extent that every election is consequential, yeah, I'm not worried about this one. Is that a fair answer? Do you believe it would be the most consequential election of our time? No. You know, you and I agree on both points. So (laughs) thanks to my guest, Dr. Jennifer Vicker, Associate Professor of Political Science at Mason's Shar School of Policy and Government. I am Mason President Gregory Washington saying until next time, stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, go to podcast.gmu.edu for more of Gregory Washington's conversations with the thought leaders, experts, and educators who take on the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. That's podcast.gmu.edu.